Today's episode is brought to you by Bit.com. You'll be hearing more about them later on in today's interview, which begins right now. My next guest needs no introduction, yet he shall have one. Ed Harrison, senior editor at Bloomberg and publisher of The Everything Risk. Ed, welcome to Forward Guidance. Thank you very much, Jack. It's great to talk to you again. And I see you have a nice mic. And now I realize I was like, ah, this is, that's what I'm missing from the days when we used to do this kind of thing all the time. I don't have a mic. Yeah. And I, actually, I'm, I'm upstairs in my uh, living room versus in the basement when we used to do it before. Oh, wow. So some things change, you know, a, yes. you know, a floor or two of, of difference. Well, Ed, uh, you know, as you said, we go way back. So we know each other well. We haven't caught up in a while and we haven't talked markets in a while. So I am really jazzed to do this. Yeah, so am I. So uh, lots to talk about, lots of volatility, you know, lots of different markets that are at play as well. Yeah, right. So, Ed, I'm just going to, you know, I was reading your most recent piece from the Everything Risk. And you say that right now we have the makings of a new era for the markets. You know, Ed, you're not someone who's given to hyperbole. So when you talk about a new era, I'm paying attention. Why, why is this a new era? Yeah, I think that because the old era was dominated by zero rate and accommodative policy. If, if you think about where we were, we hit the zero lower bound and we basically couldn't get off it except for that very short period of time between 2015 and 2019. And that was a traumatic uh, experience trying to get off the zero lower bound. We exited out of that and and went the other direction and the pandemic came. So basically since 2008, 2009, we've been in this, uh, this unbelievably easy monetary situation. And so now with the Fed tightening and because of inflation, and I believe that that inflation is embedded, it's becoming embedded in a negative way, that last CPI print that we got on Wednesday, which is actually today, but uh, it'll be tomorrow when this goes out, uh, tells you that. That tells you that the Fed can't relent. And there's political pressure for them not to relent. So we're in a new era, and that means very different things for the market than the last 14 years. Right, Ed, we should say today we're recording on Wednesday, May 11th, when the U.S. CPI was announced 8.3% year-over-year increase versus 8.1% that was expected. So definitely a hot reading. Ed, the past 14 years of easy money, how did that shape the equity markets the types of companies that went public and the prices at which they were valued, and how might that change if we're moving into a era of less easy money? Yeah, good question because I look at even during the dot com bubble period. Uh, if you go back to ninety seven, the levels uh, at ninety seven. This is pre uh, uh, LTCM. We that was sort of the low uh, during the next phase. So I'm looking at ninety seven to two thousand and uh, 13 as a, a a block during which we were range bound, even though 2013 was five years into this this uh, 14 year period that we're talking about. So the market was range bound between say 700 on the low. Uh, you get the 666 number in 2008 that on the S and P 2009 on the S and P, but uh, 1500 or thereabouts on the high. And so basically, if you got into the market near the highs during the uh, the dot-com uh, cycle, you didn't make any money for another 10, 12 years. And so when you take inflation to an account, 
really your negative returns are very large over that decade. Uh, then you look at a chart and you compare that to this, the 14-year period that we're talking about. Let's make it 16 years to go back to uh, 2006 to get it consistent. And what you really see is even though we had that little uh, hiccup uh, through two, 2009, it's just up and to the right. So what I would expect is that aberration of that up and to the right, which is coincident with the easy money period, to fade away and for us to look more sort of like we did in the period uh, before that. And remember that that was a period during which inflation wasn't a really big problem. So if you add the fact that inflation could be a problem and therefore the Fed could be more aggressive even than then, then uh, it's not just a range bound market, but one in which, you know, returns over a longer period could be negative. Mm. And Ed, you know, you were working on Wall Street back during the dot-com bubble. How does the excesses, if I can call them that, uh, while still maintaining my objectivity, the excesses that we've seen today of stocks that are going public or price to sales of 100 or they have no sales whatsoever or they have deeply flawed business models where they can grow a lot, but it costs them a lot of money. They're losing a lot of money. They're using you know funky metrics like EBITDA and community-adjusted EBITDA. H- how does that era, which perhaps we're witnessing the end of right now, how does that compare to the dot-com bubble where you had you know, kind of the similar things, but, but, but with pets.com and stuff. Right. Yeah. I think that the era in public markets, i.e. Uh, public uh, equity markets, w- was worse back then than it is today. However, if you include crypto into that, that is, uh, you know, let's use Dogecoin as a perfect example, which was, uh, a, 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 you know, the algorithm is similar to Bitcoin, but it's, it was a joke to begin with. And, you know, you have unlimited supply and it makes crypto look bad in certain ways, from my perspective. You, when, you, when you see sort of the speculation there, that's where the speculation is. So in the old days, you got all these little companies going public. Today, the the all of those companies aren't going public they're just getting vc money and it's only later that they go public but if you want to get uh access to early stage stuff in the way that you did back in the dot com bubble you have to go into the crypto arena because there's all sorts of things that are happening within the crypto arena which are early stage people are trying to get in there before we find out who the market leaders are in the next cycle and that's where potentially you can get hurt. That's where the excesses could lie. Right. And you said companies are staying private for longer. I know that was a huge hallmark of the past decade uh, because companies like Uber, which were huge, you know, valued at, what, $60 billion, they were still private. But at some point, they had to IPO, and they did IPO. Uber IPO'd, Lyft IPO'd, and that, that gave wave to the sort of SPAC boom of you know, speculative companies, i.e. non-profitable companies, in some cases, non-revenue companies, let that sink in, uh, who, who went public. And, you know, for a while, maybe let's say in the summer of 2020, it seemed like there was hope in the air. Yes, we're in a new age. Those companies, you know, what is revenue? What is profit? Come on, Ed, you're so old school. It's all about the future. It's all about, you know, this and that. And yeah, that, that has seen a huge repricing. What do you think? What do you make of it? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a believer in crypto. I'm a believer in the exponential age. 
Uh, however, I think that the, both of those things are associated with busts. It, they're associated with speculative manias and then busts. Why? Simply because we're at the next level of, of technological displacement. Crypto is a, an arena of technological displacement. If you don't get in there very quickly and get the network effects, that are uh, that uh, that are going to accrue to to you and and make you hugely valuable relative to your competitors and then basically block them out then you are not going to have a chance you got to do it immediately and so what that means is everyone and his brother is getting into the space everyone and his brother is getting into other spaces uh, of technological displacement. And there's going to be a shakeout at some point in time. When the Fed raises interest rates, when a capital investment is withdrawn, those companies that haven't made the grade yet, those will, those will be busts. Uh, and, and many of the other players will go on to huge, uh, great things in the future, but there's going to be a lot of carnage uh, between now and, and then. And how far do you think that carnage will go? You know, if you look back at the 2000 bubble, I think it started to pop in maybe May of, of 2000. And you, know, you had some carnage for five months, then it sort of relented. And then some people thought, oh, now now's the end. Now's the time to buy the dip. But it wasn't. You know, you had you know, like a year, maybe two years more of a huge drawdown. And it wasn't just the speculative names. It wasn't just the pets.com that got annihilated. It drew down the generals of the market. Uh, Cisco, if you will, uh, uh, AOL, although I don't know if that had merger had happened, but, you know, uh, Walmart's as well, sort of consumer staples as well. So can this, you know, ARC is down big. It's sold off 75% from its highs. Is it going to drag down Apple? Is it going to drag down Microsoft? What say you? Yeah, I think that the whole we've already seen, you know, the Nasdaq's off uh, 25% uh, already in, in this year. So it's definitely already dragged down. The question is, is will it go further and how much further will it go? I think Cisco is a great uh, opportunity to look because it was a market leader, it was a real company. It was actually already in the early 90s, you know, after the Fed raised interest rates in 94, uh, uh, Cisco started to take off. But it, even before that, it was recognized as the next uh, hot area. And yet here we are today and we're, we're really at levels that are commensurate with the levels of uh, the late 90s. So Cisco price earnings ratio was just tremendous. And as a result, uh, it treaded water for the next uh, 20 odd years, even though it's an amazing company. Uh, Tesla is a perfect example of that. Here's a company that you know is pricing in a ridiculous amount of growth over time. Uh, you know, basically, it has to execute perfectly over the next 20 years in order for that that growth that's priced in to be uh, uh, to be warranted. And so, it could be the next uh, Cisco of this particular era. As for, you know, Microsoft and uh, Apple, at a minimum, they their price earnings ratios are lower. So they have less to fall, having already fallen, say, 20 percent now. So I think that they have been hit. They will continue to be hit. But, you know, they'll get off the ground uh, much quicker than Cisco did back in the day and Tesla will uh, today. And what happens, Ed, to companies that are richly valued because they grow quickly? What happens when they start to go X growth, when they stop growing? 
I was at Yahoo back in the day. I left banking to go into the internet just as it was busting. And um, it, there's a thing called operating leverage. Uh, and, you know, we, we can talk about the exponential age and Metcalf's law. They're, they're, both of those things are very related. So operating leverage says that uh, when our revenue grows, the costs don't grow with at, at the same rate because we have that operating leverage. So, you know, uh, revenue grows at seven times over a period of time, but costs only grow at two times. So you get a massive amount of money that's falling to the bottom line. The problem, however, is, is if you if that growth doesn't materialize, there's a recession or and it not only does it cause growth to diminish, but potentially for you to start, you know, throwing in some negative numbers, you know, shrinking slightly, that operating leverage works in, in reverse. So it magnifies the decline and therefore all of the the projected growth just is tumbles out in in a magnified way so that's what gets you the the 50 75 90% losses in uh, the market cap uh, and when we think about it just from a a, a network effects uh, perspective you know network effects say that there's an exponential increase in the number in the value of your network as the number of people uh, get drawn to the network and we have mark zuckerberg as a perfect example of that with facebook and with instagram however uh it works in reverse if there are a lot of people in your network speculatively if those people are exited out then suddenly your network uh, loses value at a m more rapid rate than the loss in uh, the, the size of the network. So Google, Facebook, yes. The, someone joins Facebook, the network is more valuable. And you join Facebook, you join Twitter. My experience on Twitter is bolstered because I get to read your tweets and interact with you. But if you're on DoorDash and suddenly I'm on DoorDash, that's not a network effect. You know, that's that should not be you know, valued richly. And if you, if you look at the stock, DoorDash came public where those network effects were valued quite richly, uh, price to sales very, very richly. And those have come down to earth. I'd also add perhaps Carvana to that list where you know these stocks are down at 70, 80, 90 percent. I mean, you know, Ed, I'll just be honest. There was a stock. I won't name what it was, but it was an online retail stock. It was at $25, and then it went down to 6 And I said, you know what? I'm a pretty smart guy. The stock was at $25. Now it's at 6 If it goes back to 25 that's a pretty good return. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy a little bit of the stock. And then it went down to 5 And I said, you know what? It's even better. I just sort of was kept on averaging down. And now it's at like, you know, a little bit over a dollar. So I have learned the hard way, you know, uh, fortunately, I, it could have been much worse, but but I've learned the hard way that stocks that go down 80% can go down 80% again. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and uh, it's funny, I think Joe Weisenthal, he was like someone, uh, a stock was down 90%. And then it was down another 15%. He was like, I didn't even know that that could happen. A stock could go down 105%. <laughs> <laughs> he was joking, but you know, once you're down uh, 80%, you can still go down another 80% as well, which is the equivalent of you know uh, 90 some percent as a result. Uh, I, the interesting bit, however, is that I think there is some degree of network effects in uh, you know market clearing type of places like let's call it uh, 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 search or um, you know Uber or DoorDash. You know, so if more uh, uh, drivers get on board, 
then more people will get on board. So there is some sort of, you know, you have to have both sides equaling one another. And therefore, there's a um, there's a, a weaker network effect. And so to me, it shows you that there are places where the network effects like Facebook or Instagram are stronger. And then there are other places where it's weaker. A perfect example that I always use is uh, Amazon. You know, uh, I was looking for something that was like a recovery agent because I like to go out on my bicycle and sometimes I need to recover. I went to Amazon to find the, the good. Why? Because Amazon, in my mind, is like the Google of good search. So why is that? It's because everything is on Amazon. We've gotten to a point where Amazon is, there's a network effect associated with that. Yeah, Ed, I think you're totally right about Amazon. Uh, that, that that does have uh, network effects, the delivery business. The profit engine is, is AWS, the Amazon Web Services. But I think you know you look at that retail business, it's not going to ever really be a huge profit engine. I mean, it will, it will based on the sheer scale in terms of you know uh, tens of billions of dollars. But in terms of you know it's not it's not going to have a sixty percent margin. Let's say there are some businesses like let's say the iPhone or maybe Google or Facebook that uh, are just incredibly profitable business. They just print cash because uh, you know they, they just you know generate so much money. But I think you know the, the the delivery business where delivering people food to people's homes that should not be valued at a multiple where, okay, you grow to a certain level and then you become profitable and then you are really profitable. You know, I, I, I think a lot of businesses uh, have been valued as if they're technology companies when they're really sort of plain old vanilla businesses, you know? Right, yes. That's what's gonna come out of this market. You know, as uh, uh, the interest rates, as we normalize interest rates, we go back to the regime, the era that we had pre-zero rates, uh, you'll see a lot of the uh, the expectations for those kinds of businesses uh, uh, go away. So th th that's what I expect to happen, and I think it's just it's a longer term process. Uh, you know, like uh, if you think of where we are right now, if you think perhaps we're in a bear market, uh, you know, there are bear market rallies, and that goes on for a while. And I think that the the overriding uh, consideration is monetary policy, especially in the United States, because the Fed has already said what it's going to do. I think that the level of restrictiveness is going to be too much to handle just from a real economy perspective. And so all of the dynamics that we're talking about are going to gather pace in addition to a loss of capital investment, bankruptcies, uh, spread widening in the credit markets, et cetera. And all of those things will uh, hurt multiples. It will hurt especially these businesses. And you're going to get a rotation back into value as a result of that. And, and those, these businesses that we're talking about, their multiples are going to come down as a result. Before we move on to the Fed, ARKK, ARK Invest Fund, is currently trading at about $40. I believe it's low during March of 2020, the COVID crisis, was somewhere around $33. Ed, do you think it reaches that level? And if so, does it become a buy? It does. It's hard for me to say if it does become a buy because I, I, I don't know the constituent parts well enough. Uh, you know, I can just talk from a pure momentum perspective. I, I think that the real problem for ARC is the concentration uh, and also the, um, the, the fact that it is, uh, you know, uh, 
people might pull their money out from a momentum perspective. So when you have a con- when you have a concentrated portfolio like they do with 30 some stocks and these are somewhat illiquid stocks, uh, once the tide turns and people start selling and you get these redemptions, then it becomes very difficult to manage that just from a pure flows perspective because then you have to start selling your good with your bad and and then it just creates a crescendo down. So I think that uh, ARC is in a very tough situation. Uh, if the macro environment that I'm talking about is true, then you're going to see those dynamics play out, and 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 therefore, you know, those levels we'll, we'll see them hit those levels and 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 more because people are going to rotate away from the companies that are in that portfolio. And what was the macro backdrop of the past two years that was so favorable for ARC? Low interest rates from the Fed. Uh, uh, a stimulative fiscal policy as well. Why was that so stimulative to, to let's say ARKK? And you know, moving on from ARKK, you know, what's what's different about it? And perhaps you can, can you go into why higher interest rates are bad for sort of long duration stocks as well as bonds? Over the last two years, basically, I think what you had was a uh, full bore fiscal and monetary stimulus. Uh, so if you looked at 2018 to 2019, we got to a point in December 2018 where uh, the credit conditions were poor enough that the Fed relented, and then they started to backtrack. That was playing out just as the pandemic hit. And so could we have gotten a soft landing? Maybe. Would it have been a recession? It's hard to say. But then suddenly, full bore reversal of policy, and, uh, and that delayed the reckoning that we were experiencing in 2000 and, and the early 2020. And so uh, the last two years have been sort of, uh, if you go back to the dot-com period, it's sort of th- that uh, LTCM uh, Asian crisis period. That is, uh, you, you were starting to see a little bit of a correction and then, you know, the, the Fed back then uh, reversed course, and that allowed you to have the, the ultimate uh, uh, blast off. And so that's what we saw in, over the last two years. And unfortunately, that also means a much more restrictive Fed. Just like back then, we saw, you know, a, a final 50 basis point hike. Now, because of inflation, we're going to see three 50s in a row. And so uh, it, it's going. It could be, and I would predict it will be uh, worse uh, in, in many ways in terms of the the uh, the outcome. So we've got the the Fed funds rate went from zero to seventy five basis points uh, over two meetings, and it's projected 50, 50, 50 hikes. So that would be one twenty five, one seventy five, two twenty five uh, in the in just three FOMC meetings. You said you you do think that's going to happen. Tell us how you think that's going to shape markets. Is the market going to react? Because the market sold off so much before this has happened. And then also, what do you think will be more deleterious to markets, the rate hikes or the quantitative tightening, the reduction in the Fed's balance sheet? Yeah, so I think that it, it, it's seen, uh, the markets can only price in so much in terms of you know what's going to happen because we can't see uh, into the future. But what I think is going to happen is we're going to get a, a the reality check in terms of um, credit distress, and and also we'll get a reality check in terms of the mortgage market, and so I think that we'll see a lot of slowing on on, on both of those things. That is, 
uh, people who are looking to refinance, to re-up. There's going to be more distress there because of the levels. And then we're also going to see uh, in the housing sector, we're going to see um, you know a slowing. We've already seen that slowing. We've already seen some level of distress. If you look at junk, triple uh, Cs, which are the lowest uh, non-default, non-distress uh, ranked uh, um, high yield bonds, they've uh, tanked uh, under under the onslaught. But we're going to see it accelerate. So I think that um, the real economy for those most vulnerable, those companies most vulnerable, that's going to be more difficult for them in the coming months. Because they'll just have to pay a higher rate on their bonds, both on a risk-free basis as well as the credit spread on top of that. Exactly. And so I think that you're going to see more distress. And once that distress seeps in, uh, then we'll, you know, that's when the slowing will begin. And, and you know, the markets can't fully price all of that in. There's still the potential that uh, inflation relents, uh, that uh, the Fed doesn't do the, the 50 basis points, hikes, et cetera. So it's not fully priced in. It will only be fully priced in once it happens. Right. And Ed, you said you're starting to see some distress in the triple C's. The yield on the triple C's is going to 10%. That does sound bad, but one might argue, hey, you're lending to highly junk grade, you know, like kind of the lowest grade credit there is. You should be getting a 10% yield. The fact that you would get only a 5% yield or a 7% yield is a sign of a monetary disorder, overstimulation. And, you know, I, I think triple C's in terms of yield to worse went to what, 35% in 2008. So there is a huge, there's a yawning gap between crisis and where we are now. And looking at high yield, uh, the, the the less junky side of high yield, less risky, I should say, I feel like a lot of that, uh, the sell-off, let's say in HYG, has been in the risk-free rate rather than the credit spread itself. So, you know, I'm, an, I'm a novice in the credit markets, Ed, you know, I've never, I haven't worked there professionally like you, you know, you had a blog called for, for a long time, uh, credit write-downs. Am I wrong that so much of the stress uh, you know, that we haven't seen nearly, you know, we haven't, we haven't seen that much stress in the credit markets so far. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely the case. And also, uh, you know, just going back to December, 2018, we still haven't had that event yet that, you know, that, that credit event, enough of the deterioration, in the credit that it causes the, the fed pause. So we're, we're definitely not there yet. The credit spreads haven't gapped out enough. It hasn't hit the triple B's. Um, and interestingly enough, I think I saw a, a Marty Fridson, who's a, a high yield analyst. He's a specialist there. Everyone knows. Uh, he was talking about the default rates, the default rates that um, that we're seeing versus what Moody's, uh, you know, that the default rate that's implicit in the spreads is less than what even an analyst like Moody's is saying they expect in the in the market. So if there's that discrepancy between the actual price, the uh, the implied default rate, and the default rate that uh, Moody's, the ratings agency, is projecting, then you have to get that price up, uh, the you know the 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 the, uh, the risk rate up or the Moody's rate has to come down. I think what you're going to see is, is that this is going to go up. It could be that Moody's then goes up and it goes up even more. So all of that's going to happen, and it's not going to happen in a glide path way. 
uh, December of 2018 tells you that it happens in a crescendo kind of way. And then that's when you get the, uh, the, the 30%, I think that you were talking about things of that nature, this, these discontinuities. And roughly, Ed, how tight do financial conditions have to get in order for the Federal Reserve to be successful in destroying demand and lowering inflation? You know, it's pretty clear that a 4.5% high yield spread, what we have now, is not going to do it. Are we looking at 6%, 7%? Likewise, on the S&P, you know, is a 3,700 30, 3, on the S&P 500, what's that, roughly a 20% sell-off? Is that going to be sufficient or do we need to go lower? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, it's anyone's call, but I think in terms of what the Fed is saying, it's interesting. There were two Fed officials yesterday that I uh, listened to that I thought were interesting. One was Rafael Bostic of the Atlanta Fed, and he was talking about uh, he thought that the cadence, he used that term, uh, was good, that they were on, i.e. They, they did 50, meaning uh, I, I thought implicitly he was say, suggesting they're going to do more 50s. So 50, 50, 50. And then he said, we'll just have to see what the, what the markets say, as if there was an implicit put, meaning we're going to do 50, 50, 50. But if the markets uh, fall out of bed, maybe we'll uh, lower that cadence. That was my takeaway. Then there was Mester, uh, who was speaking almost from the other side. She was saying, we're not taking 75 basis points off the table. Though in the near term, that's not going to happen, largely because, as Powell told us, they haven't talked about it yet. And if they haven't talked about it yet, they can't really do it. They're not going to surprise the market. But it's on the table for the future. And when she was asked by Mike McKee, my colleague at Bloomberg, uh, you know, about uh, recession, you know, her answer suggested that it is a possibility that the Fed could push us into recession, meaning she said, completely dodging that part of the question, I'm totally concerned with inflation. So what you have to take away from that is, is is that inflation is such a sticky issue for the Fed. It's such a political issue in the United States now that the Fed has to completely disregard uh, the real economy. And the only thing that will cause them uh, uh, some level of distress is a market that has discontinuities. Uh, where they are therefore forced to intercede because, uh, you know, they need to clear the market, that the market has become gummed up in a, a you know, in a way that uh, is deleterious to the functioning of, of financial, um, of the real economy. And the gumming up, what would that look like? Because I think the Federal Reserve a few days ago put out its uh, latest stability report, how they think the, how stable they think the financial system is. And I'm just reading exact quote, you know, corporate bond valuations, quote, remain high and that forward price to earnings ratios in the stock market, quote, are still in the top quintile of their historical distribution. So the Fed still thinks that stocks and bonds are overvalued. Uh, What would have to happen? What what about a gumming up of the works would have what would that look like in order for the Fed to to back off and to have another Powell pivot? So we can just look at all of the pivots that we've seen before. Uh, and that would give you an indication. Uh, the last one was March 2020. The one before that was December 2018. I would say arguably the one before that was probably all the way back in uh, in 2008. And then you can go back 
probably to 2000 or to 1998 with LTCM. So it's those kinds of discontinuities where, uh, you know, you could have a, a, um, a debt deflation unless they intercede and make uh, financial uh, markets uh, clear. That's the kind of thing that I think that's the only thing that will stop them. So whenever when, it, when people talk about the, the Fed put and they talk about equities falling out of bed, I think that, that that's not accurate. Really, the Fed put is about uh, credit. It's about you know financial conditions tightening so much that basically uh, no trades are getting done. And then the Fed has to come in and make it so that the market clears. Today's episode is brought to you by Bit.com, a leading cryptocurrency trading platform. From spot to futures to options trading and more, Bit.com has it all. So whether you're a seasoned investor or you're new to the game, you need to be on Bit.com. Bit.com has launched a zero-taker fee option campaign until May 10th. To enroll, email VIP at Bit.com. That's Bit spelled B-I-T. So email VIP at Bit.com and tell them I sent you. And I want to turn to inflation. Inflation has been hot for well over a year now, and people's purchasing power is is being eroded. There's there's no doubt about it. It's caused a huge sell-off in bonds, long-duration equities. Um, I'm going to read. I want to get your view. I want to read from from um, the Everything Risk, uh, your, your newsletter. You say you you used to be a deflationist because you thought that the biggest secular trends, aging demographics, and increasing debt were disinflationary. That limits how embedded inflation can get. But the gargantuan pandemic policy response and the lingering supply chain and consumption changes make me think inflation will remain elevated for years. Tell us about your thinking and and how does that you know, change change your outlook. Yeah. So, Jack, you have the uh, the long term and you have the medium and the short term. Uh, there are lots of uh, long term negatives in terms of demographics and high levels of aggregate debt within the global economy that are restraining uh, on on uh, inflation. You know, so that disinflation and potentially deflation and debt deflation are problems when you hit uh, crisis uh, periods. But uh, where you know over the short and medium term, you can get dynamics that go counter to that longer term trend, and I think this is what we're seeing. The level of stimulus was so uh, so great, not just in the United States but uh, globally, and then you add in the supply chain problems that over not just a year but two three years, you can get uh, effects hysteresis, so to speak, uh, in in terms of that inflation. Sorry, can you remind me what what is hysteresis? <laughs> that means that whatever happened uh, impacts uh, the the course of events going forward. So there's a there's a, a stickiness to the problem. So that you know the problem like inflation has become so embedded. Uh, you know the 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 transitory uh, inflation has has gone on for so long that it actually uh, starts to seep in and and create. Uh, its own momentum for uh, future events, um, and and you know I think one way to look at this, this is the way that I look at it certainly is uh, in terms of the uh, monetary offset. So uh, a lot of people they talk about the fiscal uh, side of things, but really if you're thinking about what's the optimal response to a pandemic or uh, which is unprecedented and shutdowns. 
probably it's some uh, gargantuan level of fiscal response in order to prevent worst case outcomes, especially in the United States, where we're not going, where people get separated from their jobs. You, you don't have schemes where you can uh, have people working and then top up their salary, even if they're only working half time, which is you know what uh, they do in Germany and the Netherlands and places like that. So that means the people never get separated from their positions. And when the lockdowns are over, they can go back to their positions. In the United States, you had, you had unemployment go up to record levels. So what do you do in those cases? You jam it on fiscally. The Fed's position should be in that case to offset that. That is, is that here we are in a situation where we're jamming it on fiscally. This gives us the opportunity to, um, uh, to uh, have tighter monetary policy. So rather than uh, move with the fiscal authorities, we're going to move against the fiscal authorities. And because they're moving so aggressively, we can do that. Uh, and that ensures that inflation won't spiral out of control. The Fed did the opposite. And so that's the, the reason that we're in the position that we're in. So when I look at the totality of events and I think about you know what the fiscal response was in the UK, what the fiscal response was in Japan, what it was in Germany, I think that ultimately um, the fiscal response in the United States was commensurate with what you see in other places. And that wasn't the error. The error was in the monetary response. That is is uh, moving in concert with the fiscal response. And was that a response? What they did in March and April of 2020, rolling out all those programs, you know, expanding the balance sheet by hundreds of billion dollars in a, in a few weeks, or was it the fact that they continued quantitative easing and low rates until long after it was necessary? Yeah, yeah, the second. It's the latter. It's the fact that even after the crisis was over, uh, they were continuing to. Uh, create money uh, and, 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 and continue the crisis mode. And so that allowed a, a bubble to form and for you know, completely speculative stocks to get a bid. And, uh, and, and that distorted the market in ways that we're now appreciating. So, Ed, what is your outlook on the Phantom Mag stocks? Explain what the Phantom Mag stocks are. You know, a lot of carnage in the speculative growth stocks, but is it, you know, is it really going to drag down the Phantom Mag? And if they do, how much of a sell-off do you think we're going to see? Yeah. So actually it's Phantom Man uh, because it's NVIDIA, which is the, the last N. And I look at uh, the Phantom Man stocks as the eight largest uh, 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 NASDAQ 100 stocks, or that were the eight largest when uh, the NASDAQ first started to sell off in, in November, you know, at its apogee in November. So the largest were Facebook, uh, aka, um, uh, what, what is it called? Meta, Meta, Meta Platforms, yeah. Meta, yeah. Exactly. Man. Man. Uh, then you had uh, Apple, uh, you, had, uh, you had Netflix, you have Tesla, you have Amazon, then you have uh, Microsoft. You also have uh, Alphabet and then NVIDIA. So that's the whole phantom man. Those are the top eight. And, in, and even in the S&P 500, there are, uh, they were pretty much some of the eight largest stocks. There were only one or two, maybe an oil company like ExxonMobil that uh, outweighed them. So th 
on a market cap based uh, perspective, you know, S&P and, and NASDAQ, they're very important. And what we've seen is, you know, a one by one uh, picking off of the Phantom Man stocks. First, we saw Facebook and, and Netflix, you know, single day uh, massive uh, losses because they missed earnings. And then most recently, we saw Amazon. I didn't think that Amazon was actually the next most vulnerable, but it turns out that they were. I think that Tesla and NVIDIA are also vulnerable. And then when you get to the last bastion of, uh, you know, of Phantom Man, those are the oldest, the most diversified, Microsoft, um, Alphabet, and, um, and uh, uh, what, what's the last of the three? I'm, I'm forgetting now. NVIDIA. Uh, uh, no, no, no. It's it's actually um, it it was Amazon, but it's also Al- Alphabet and uh, Apple and Apple. Yes, yeah. and and uh, and Microsoft. Those are the stalwarts. When you start to see uh, problems there, that's when you know it's infected the rest of the economy. Um, we haven't gotten there yet, and so until that happens, I think that. Uh, we probably will not be in a recession. Uh, we may not enter into a um, a panic, you know, a uh, financial uh, calamity. I think that when when those last three in the Phantom Man stocks uh, give way, that's when we have to worry that the overall economy has been compromised. What about China? Yeah, China is exporting uh, stagflation. Uh, in particular, because their zero COVID policy means that supply chains are snarled and it adds into inflation, but at the same time, it lowers demand within China. You know, when people can't go out of their homes to do anything, uh, the, the net spending is, is lower. So you have ma- you know a massive loss of aggregate demand as a result of what's going on in China and an increase in, in inflation. And that's being transmitted out to the rest of the world. And uh, that's overall negative. The only positive uh, from an inflationary perspective is the commodity price uh, impact. Um, perhaps the commodity price impact overrides the supply chain impact. So, you know, you could uh, look at uh, copper, you can look at uh, oil. All of those things are things that uh, China uses in, in droves, and as a result of the lack of demand in China, uh, there's going to be a price moderation there. So that could actually be over uh, some period of time positive. But obviously, you know, they may have to play catch up once they leave uh, the the uh, the lockdowns, and so it's it's not clear what sort of impact it's going to have over the medium term in terms of inflation. Uh, how significant has Russia's invasion of Ukraine? disrupted commodity markets. And let's talk about three key commodities, oil, natural gas, and, and wheat. And so give us your general view. And then I also want to hear, you know, do you think Europe can successfully wean itself off of Russian natural gas and oil, but in particular natural gas, in a short period of time, like let's say a year? So, you know, when we look at oil as uh, being fungible, even though there are grade differentials and refining capacity uh, is perhaps limited to one particular grade of oil, you can transport it all around the world. Natural gas, on the other hand, you can't transport all around the world unless you have liquefied natural gas that's coming in. And they don't have the terminals in, in Europe. 
the United States, in terms of exporting liquefied natural gas, doesn't have the terminals uh, per se to completely supplant Russia. So it's going to be more difficult to deal with natural gas than it is going to be to deal with uh, oil. And then uh, it's to be determined what happens in Ukraine with regard to wheat, because Ukraine's a major exporter of wheat. Uh, this planting season has been uh, very difficult. And so we may see over the next year another shock, another inflationary shock as a result of the war in Ukraine. The last shock I would mention is that given everything that we've been saying, the Russians, they understand all, all of the dynamics here. And so they may want to preemptively use natural gas as a weapon. So they may preemptively cut off, say, Germany from natural gas in order to inflict damage because that's their, their best uh, ability to do so. Ed, what do you think are the odds of you know sort of a, a global energy crisis happening? Because typically, historically, when the price of oil has gone up, oil companies invest money to build new wells. They, they go into new countries to, to dig and they go to you know, dig overseas wells. Uh, but now a lot of them are taking the money that they, they make and buying back stock, giving it to shareholders and sort of sitting on their hands. So uh, you know, I, I know you, you must encounter this narrative a lot that oil companies are not producing enough. There's been an underinvestment in fossil fuels. What's your outlook on to what degree that underinvestment is, if it is underinvestment, uh, you know, going to create a huge global energy shortage? Yeah, I think that uh, you know, you, it goes back to what we were talking about in terms of um, short to medium term over the long term. You know, when we were talking about debt deflation, you know, it's like the whole concept of peak oil, peak uh, oil reserves or peak conventional oil reserves. I think that, you know, the toggle that we're starting to see now in the oil market is shale. That's what, what you're talking about. But that's a very, um, you know, difficult structure to deal with because uh, those wells, they deplete very quickly. And at the same time, uh, you know, um, you have the whole capital investment problems that you were just talking about, because we went through that in 2014-15. So I think that it, it just creates a, a whole level of complexity in terms of understanding how the, the market will re resolve the any, any shortages, because that, that uh, market is very volatile. You know, it's not a, a, a it's not like uh, we can invest there and it will come back and we can uh, we can keep our investments like Deepwater Horizon was a problem. But once they capped the well, people were uh, uh, people weren't saying we're going to stop drilling uh, deep water um, before that. They didn't suddenly things weren't suddenly different afterwards. But with uh, with shale, I think that. Um, after the, the shale bust, people are looking at it in quite a different way, that we really need levels to be really high before we're willing to, to, to gamble uh, with massive uh, capital investment there. Right. And do you think that high energy prices are a serious risk to global growth? Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, when you, when you ask that, I immediately think back to 73 and 79. You know, I wasn't old enough to know what was going on then. You weren't born then. And so we can't really say, but my understanding is that it, they were embargoes. They weren't stoppages. It wasn't that 
you know, the Middle East said, we're going to stop producing oil. So in some senses, you could say it was a supply shock in the exact same way that what we're getting now is a supply shock. And yet, uh, you know, the prices uh, went way up. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, I think they tripled their price overnight. And that's what caused the whole problem. So it's a supply shock. So even though you have a supply shock, um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have reverberations that are not just short term, but also medium and potentially long term, especially if the preconditions economically are make you uh, fragile and, and, and uh, you know, prone to, uh, to uh, shock in a negative way. Yeah, that is so true. And a year ago, deflationists and people who were on Team Transitory were saying inflation is supply side driven, it's supply side driven, with the implication being, if it's supply side driven, things will get fixed out because, you know, uh, uh, companies in China, they're not making the necessary products and it's causing a jam in the works. But, you know, in a few months, it's all going to settle itself out. I actually think not only they were, were they wrong, I actually think it's the exact opposite, uh, where they're more than wrong, where... Uh, supply side is much more serious because it can last for a very long time. If there's a global energy shortage, that could last for five, 10 years. Whereas if, if it's demand side, all the Fed needs to do is hike interest rates to 3% and destroy demand, cause a little recession, and then you know game over. We're, we're good. But uh, w- what are the implications of inflation that is primarily supply side driven and therefore one that is somewhat immune to monetary tightening by the Federal Reserve? You know, uh, it was interesting when I was listening to the Fed officials talk about this, um, and we were having a question within my team, uh, which is the Markets Live team that does the Bloomberg Terminal blog, and the question was, is it a supply or a demand-side driven recession if the Fed intervenes? And what the Fed officials have been saying is something of like, we need to, to get supply and demand in balance. Uh, and then you ask yourself, you try to unpack that. What does that really mean, right? Because what they're saying essentially is supply is limited and we need to get supply and demand in balance. To me, that sounds like if supply is limited and demand's up here, we need to get demand reduced to that level. Um, and, you know, if you think about the macro preconditions in terms of demand, uh, debt and and also the potential you know debt deflationary forces interestingly for me at least you know you can still unleash those in that sort of situation that basically they're trying to you know sand, you know sand pa- uh you know uh pancake the uh the the level of demand and then in so doing potentially they could unleash uh debt deflation dynamics and they stand at the ready of course with uh, extraordinary measures if that were to happen. But, you know, it's a very dynamic system that we're playing with. So, Ed, you, earlier you said you used to be a deflationist. Now you're flirting with being an inflationist. I'm going to put you to the test. So the five-year inflation break-even, uh, what the market is pricing in for inflation over the next five years, is 2.92%. Uh, do you think it's over or under in terms of what we realize for inflation over the next five years? Yeah, I might have to punt on that because it's it's hard to say. <laughs> I have to say because you know I think that as I was saying we're we're dealing with a dynamic situation and uh, I think uh, back when I was at uh, Real Vision we used to talk about Scylla and Charybdis 
you know, uh, charting the course. And I think we're still very much in that uh, that mode where you could just crash on one side or the other. It's a very tricky thing with, uh, and you're being buffeted on both sides and it could easily just veer off course either way. So uh, if, I, if I had to choose, I, what I would say is over a five year period uh, that there will be an episode that is somewhat debt deflationary uh, that could get you to those levels. Um, and so those levels aren't necessarily off, but it will be discontinuous. That is, is, is that you're going to have uh, a period of above trend inflation, inflation falling less quickly than you want it to be. The Fed jamming it on in order to like, you know, get uh, the, the levels down. And then suddenly like that, uh, you have a discontinuity. And what is going on in Europe with inflation and the European Central Bank? I think Germany's PPI, producer price index, is at something like 30%, a lot of that because of energy. And the ECB is still at negative rates. Uh, what are, are they Are they making plans to hike rates or are they saying that the economy is too weak? What's going on? Yeah, I'm, I'm at a loss, to be honest with you. I, I don't know what's going on there. All I know is, is that they're the ones who are the furthest behind. And uh, it's not clear um, when and how they're going to catch up and what the outcome is going to be for their economies, especially given the the weapon that uh, Russia has against them in terms of natural gas. Uh, so whereas you might have said, I wanted to rotate into Europe because uh, basically th there was a differential in terms of price earnings ratios, in terms of how attractive those stocks were. And the Europeans at some point were actually performing better. Now you can't do that. It, it, it's definitely fraught with risk because we really, it's it's a much more volatile situation there than it is in the United States. If that's if if that can actually be the case, yeah. So so the ECB, as you say, it's the most, it's the furthest behind out of all global central banks, with the possible exception of the BOJ, the Bank of Japan. But I don't think they really count because the Bank of Japan is sort of raising their eyes. They're saying, yeah, we're behind, but we want to be behind. We are, we do not want interest rates to rise at all. They're doing yield curve control and this sort of monetary suppression. Hard monetary suppression from the BOJ, soft perhaps suppression from the uh, ECB. Let's just call it dovishness. Is caused the dollar to explode higher against the uh, yuan, excuse me, against the yen as well as the euro. Uh, what do you make of the strong dollar, and how strong does the dollar have to be before it itself is something that worries the Fed? You know, uh, it, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Japan because immediately I was thinking about Japan after we talked about Europe. Uh, but from a different angle, and that is, uh, why is it that they aren't seeing the same sort of price pressures that uh, when you look at their price levels, uh, it's nothing like what you see in Europe and the United States. I mean, inflation in Japan simply is not the same problem. What are they doing that uh, that's different? I, I, I don't know. I'm not close enough to the situation, so I can't really say. So I think that is interesting. But if you look at DXY, 70% of it is uh, the, the dollar yen and uh, a dollar euro. So DXY at 104 or thereabouts now is uh, mostly because of that. And then, of course, you also have the, the pound, which is getting crushed as well. Um, so the question, therefore, for me, and I think that we were talking about this with our former colleague from uh, Real Vision Max, Weethy, 
what is the dollar telling us? And generally speaking, I think I agree with Max that it's mostly telling us that there's a differential in uh, in policy and in rate policy. And then the question is, is are we at max uh, differential, policy differential? Uh, and what does that mean for the dollar? So, um, that's the, the primary focus. However, as I said, you know, the discontinuities of Fed policy make it so that the, the whole dollar smile problem does come into play. Because as soon as you get a discontinuity in markets, you know, a panic, a, uh, a, a crash, uh, a, a crisis, then everything's going to go towards the dollar. So I think that um, the dollar on a basis that's because of yield differentials is really close to where it needs to be uh, as a top. I, I, so I think that you know that means more dollar weakness in the future, but then you have the discontinuity that can happen overnight. And in terms of where the Fed is concerned, they're not going to be concerned at these levels. They're, they're only going to be concerned uh, if it goes up beyond these levels, which I don't think it will do, without the discontinuity. Ed, could you? it's been so great having you on Forward Guidance. Could you sum up your views? And maybe the, the prompt I'll give you is, why is your newsletter called The Everything Risk? Yeah, so I think my view is that in 2008, 2009, we moved into the new regime. Uh, that was the zero rate regime. And in so doing, we believed that we were in a new era. And in some ways we were, the, the zero rate, the easy money era. Um, and, and that meant that the charts for equities, lots of different things looked very different than it did before. But that era is now over. Uh, and moreover, it, it created a whole host of risks that have metastasized in various ways, even since then, that have been we've had to suppress. We saw that with the European debt crisis. We saw that with the uh, the shale oil uh, capital misallocation bubble. Uh, we saw that with the repo crisis, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so now that the Fed is normalizing policy, I think that uh, those risks, a, a host of them, will pop up in ways that are more difficult for us to maneuver. You know, we we had singular risks that popped up that were more, easier to deal with during the zero rate regime. But now the everything risk is invoking the sense that we're in a completely different era. And that means that those risks manifest themselves in ways that we can't project. Ed, those of the viewers in the audience, those of us who are lucky enough to have a Bloomberg terminal can find your writings on uh, the Bloomberg terminal by typing in MLIV. But if they want to read the Everything Risk, where where do they go to find that? Yeah, so I think that if you go to the main page of Bloomberg and hit the tab, uh, there's a section that says newsletters and my newsletters amongst those newsletters. And uh, you can subscribe that way. And, uh, you know, it's free. Uh, which is great. So it's not behind the paywall. Uh, and, uh, you know, just after we speak today, I'm going to talk about what is, uh, I'm going to talk to um, my editor about what's what's on our agenda next uh, for, for next week, next Tuesday, every Tuesday it comes out. Every Tuesday, you know, 
Ed, uh, my podcast also comes out on Tuesday, so we're competing. Oh, good. No. <laughs> uh, well, Ed, thank you so much. Uh, talk, talk soon. Definitely.